My name is Logan Fields. I have, uh, my wife and I have been members here. Well, we've been at Riverside about a year and a half. We've been members for about a year. And um, let me just tell you my story. So I accepted Christ when I was eight years old. I grew up in an Air Force family. So kind of all over, mainly Japan and Hawaii is where I grew up. And uh, went to Bible college. My wife and I met at Bible college. And then a week after I graduated, we got married. And then we went right into ministry. We were in ministry in Hawaii, which was as cool as it sounds for me anyway. <laughs> and uh, we were in ministry in Lubbock as uh, an assistant pastor and then as an associate pastor, doing kind of filling multiple roles, singles ministry, children's ministry, and uh, youth ministry is mainly what I did in, in Lubbock, Texas. And we were in these very, my wife and I both grew up and were in ministry in very legalistic churches. And legalism basically means it's super focused on the rules and the standards. And so it was silly things like can't listen to Casting Crowns uh, or any contemporary Christian music, like big no-no. And when I say that, I mean there are literally video courses and seminars on why you don't listen to that kind of stuff. Women uh, don't wear pants. They do wear other stuff. So, like, you know, they can only wear skirts and dresses. I was in a tie constantly. Every day of Bible college, I was in a tie. And, um, and then, you know, when I was in ministry, constantly wear a tie. So, no, you will never see me in a tie. I, I wore one at, a, like, some black tie gala, and I regretted it. I'm not wearing a tie ever again unless my wife makes me. I, uh, so, so the thing is, with legalism, it creates a very mean spirit. It's, a, it's very critical and judgmental. And you kind of have two extremes as far as philosophies that, that you can carry. There's legalism, which we were a part of. And then there's prosperity gospel is the other end of it. But they're actually very closely related. And prosperity gospel is a lot of, like, if you've ever heard of the book or the movie The Secret, um, name it, claim it, just have faith and believe and be positive and attract those good things to you. God will bless you. The thing is, with legalism and its standards and its emphasis on God's judgment and prosperity gospel and its emphasis on God's blessings, both of those things are actually mostly true, almost completely true, both of those things. It's the, the problem is it approaches God the wrong way, and it, it takes the bulk truth and uses the truth to carry the poison. Um, and, and they're both very dangerous. Here's the way to look at it. Legalism points at others. Prosperity gospel points at yourself because it's all about what you're going to get. And real Christianity points at Jesus. Jesus wins. We were in, so, so we're in this, these legalistic churches and our marriage was, for the first four and a half years of marriage, um, so during ministry, horrible. Everything, all of the horrible, ugly, you know, things that you could have in a marriage, we had in our marriage. And so, so God is showing us to, to leave legalism, and actually going to a Cast and Crowns concert was one of the big turning points for us, which we weren't really supposed to do. <laughs> Ooh, I was a bad boy. Uh, 
And uh, so, you know, I basically, you know, for me it was, I saw Casting Crowns, and what they say is, what, what the legalist will say is, well, worldly music and Christian music done with worldly uh, rhythms, I guess, is sensual. And, you know, I came out of the Casting Crowns concert, and I wasn't, like, wanting to have illicit relationships with anyone. <laughs> and uh, I realized, I, start, I just started to see some things. So we prayed, okay, I, I'm an assistant pastor at a really small church. We're making no money. We had no savings. Um, and so I, we needed a way out. I said, Lord, we need X amount in order to move on because of our marriage and also because I had no connections to other churches outside of our denomination, I couldn't go into ministry again. So I started a software business while I was still in ministry. And uh, it took off, actually, we, we made a lot of money very quickly. I had five people working for us full-time before I was even full-time. Um, and I was doing stupid things like buying $200 shirts. This is not one of those shirts. And, uh, <laughs> and then, like, going, seriously, going to Brazilian steakhouses multiple times a week and bringing friends with me. And, uh, yeah, I have no excuses. You're all looking at me like I'm dumb. I know I was dumb. And then the cash flow didn't repeat itself. First quarter was great, and then it wasn't. And so now we're losing money. We've gone full-time in the business. Our marriage is continuing to break down, and we wound up, uh, for financial reasons and just some pressure off of our relationship and stuff, we lived with her family, my in-laws, for a year, which is exactly what it sounds like. <laughs> and so things are continuing to go poorly. The business isn't clicking in. Our marriage isn't working. And there's one night, it's like 2 a.m., and I pray... And, I, and God just brought me to this really unique point where I said, you have to fix this. And it, I don't know exactly how to explain it, but it wasn't a request. There was no plan B. There was no alternative. It was, I can't do it, and you can't not do it. You have to do this. And Jesus said, now you understand. And, and right then, things started changing. The business started to, to click in, and God started to do some special things in our marriage, which was a process of time, about three months is kind of what it took. We, uh, you know, before that point, as I would talk to family and friends, I expected us to get divorced. And so I would, it was all about contingency plans. Right when I would talk to family and friends, it was about the contingency plans and, well, when's she going to do the divorce and stuff like that. But then God touched my heart, and he said, I am going to fix this. Now, Jesus doesn't do exactly that in every situation. Jesus always wins. But for us, he did that. And so then, even when, when things were still strained with us, and, you know, we're coming off of years of horrible relationship. So she was, she was done. She wasn't in a place where she could even see the changes that had already started happening in me. And so it did take time. But I started t telling people, no, God's going to fix this. 
I know for sure God's going to fix this. And he did. And now God's brought us to a point where in the fall, we're actually hosting a small group on marriage. Isn't that crazy? God loves to do stuff like that. Jesus always wins. Let me, let me kind of put a really important distinction out there. I said Jesus wins, which is not always the same thing as you winning. And there's kind of where we diverge from the prosperity gospel. Prosperity gospel is just humanism with a cross painted over it. It's, hey, decide what you want and then use Jesus as your vehicle to get there. Sometimes the results aren't going to be what you want. I promise the results will never be what you thought. And um, it's about Jesus winning. You might not get rich. You might not have a good career. You might do both of those things. Neither of those things say whether you do or do not have God's hand or his blessing. They don't. Not, not independent of God's hand. And um, Jesus always wins. Some of you, no, for sure, a good handful of you, you're right now dealing with genuine, robust issues in your life that it does not look or feel like God can adjust. Maybe you intellectually understand, well, yeah, of course, God is God and he can fix anything, but you don't feel that way at all. Jesus always wins. Psalm 2, please. Psalm 2, this is a song of David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So this is a prophetic psalm, um, which means, and one of the cool things about a prophetic psalm is it's multidimensional, and the Bible is the only text in the history of the world that can do this, meaning David is talking specifically about the time where he lived, and he's also speaking specifically about the future. And as far as the prophetic element, he's talking about end times. There's going to come a time when Jesus will rapture his church to heaven. That's imminent. It could happen at any moment. If it happened while I was preaching, that would be super cool. It could happen at any moment. And then there's a seven-year period approximately. Uh, it's called the tribulation period. And a lot of things, a lot of miracles, a lot of plagues, things like that happen in there. And then Jesus comes back and the world decides to fight God. And then he wins. He breaks them like a rod to, to a pot, and he rules on earth for a thousand years, and then some other things happen after that. So this is what's crazy and that a lot of people miss about the end times, this whole Armageddon thing, 
what's happening is people actually, so, so we're gone. Christians are gone. And the people of the world, there won't be atheists anymore. They won't exist. Everyone on earth will know Jesus is coming back and he is God. He created us. They'll know all of that. They'll believe all of that. And they are going to literally be ready to fight God. And they're going to expect, I assume, to win. How does somebody get to that place where they hate Jesus so much, they know who he is, and they choose to fight him? That's a great question, right? Look at what verse 3 says. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Everything I've memorized because of where I was was KJV. So if you hear me diverging, it's because I memorized things in a different version. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. They're saying, the world's saying, hey, we know Jesus came and died for us. We know he rose again. Oh, he's got us in prison. Let's get out of this prison and break his bonds from us. That's what the whole world is saying. Why do they feel that way? Well, a lot of people feel that way today. A lot of Christians feel that way. The reason I believe, that there are a couple reasons, I'm just going to focus on, on one main reason, that somebody would view God that way and feel, therefore, that way about God is because somebody has misrepresented Jesus to them. People look at Christians and they make their judgment about Jesus, about God, based on us. That actually used to frustrate me a lot, and, you know, I would talk to atheists and friends and family and stuff, and I'd say, well, no, no, you can't make your judgments about God based on what Christians do. Um, and that would be nice if they didn't, but they do. And that will never, ever change. It's true. We represent Christ. You, if you're a Christian, you are Jesus to someone. There is someone that closes their eyes, and when they think of Jesus, they see your face. And the way they feel about you is the way they feel about Jesus. Your kids, for sure. Your spouse, probably. Those who work with you. And so, what do you like at work? What do you like with your kids? What do you like at home? Because somebody closes their eyes and they feel about Jesus the way they feel about you. And I'm, I'm using that really distinct lang language because if I just say view Jesus, that's kind of just elicits an intellectual response that you can just have from Sunday school, right? And it, it's just too easy. Here's a good question for you, even if you're a Christian. How do you feel about God? Some of you are refusing to answer in your heads. I can see it in your eyes. How do you feel about God? If you could be honest with yourself, then, then you can start to get somewhere. You know what's amazing about God? First of all, obviously, he already knows how you feel. Um, but he just, he does something special when you go to him and admit it. But a good way to do it would be give yourself one word, and it's a specific word, so not good or bad. Give yourself one specific word. How do you feel about God. And understand that whatever that word is, is blown up a hundred times to the outside world. They can see it, and they translate it into their view of God. 
and how they feel about God. Because if you're mad or frustrated that you feel like he, he hasn't given you what he should, he took something from you, whatever it is, that's totally going to go to the outside world, and you're contributing to this whole thing of people feeling imprisoned by God. Now, God doesn't imprison people, but people seem to think that. You see it with Eve, right? She, she presumably, right, her husband's sinless, so I, I, I assume she has the best husband in the history of the world. She has this beautiful garden. They're literally physically walking with Jesus each day in the garden, and then uh, Satan shows up in the form of a serpent and misrepresents God, and she changes her mind. She didn't take of the forbidden fruit thinking that it was all going to go so poorly. She had changed her mind. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Really strong language. This is talking about when the world goes to fight God. Verse 5, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king, that's Jesus, on Zion, my holy hill, that's in Israel. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So what this is saying is the, the battle is going to come, uh, Jesus is going to decisively win, and, and then the nations are given to Jesus as his inheritance. And the, wh- why is it that it's so intense at this point? It doesn't seem like it's really colored by love right here. It's saying God has derision, God laughs, and then he breaks them like a rod to a pot. Um, and the legalists love this kind of passage but it's in the bible so i love it too but let me tell just just think about how how did god get to this point now first of all he's laughing partly because the world's trying to come at him and he doesn't even try to fight he just speaks and he wins but why does he feel derision for the world well we'll think about it eve eats the fruit there was why in tarnation did she do that well, she does it. And then you have the flood, and, and Noah and his family are saved. Great miracles, obvious things. And during Noah's lifetime, by the way, the Tower of Babel is starting to be built in direct opposition to God. So they do it again. Like immediately, the whole world, boom, they do it again. They go against God. And then you have, I'm just hitting some of the highlights, you have the the nation of Israel is in bondage in Egypt, they're slaves for 400 years, significantly longer than the entire history of our country. 400 years. And and then God sends plagues to to Egypt, tells Pharaoh to let them go. Plagues, 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 miracles, right? And then they're released. On their way out, they're given handfuls of treasures and gold. Right? They're going from generational slavery to all of a sudden they have handfuls of wealth. And then on their way out, you know, they're, they're chased, but God opens up the sea. He does them one better. He even makes the, the ground dry. And like about two million people go over. Miracle. And then he protects them with a cloud by day. They're in the desert, right? So it's hot. And a pillar of fire by night. It's cold at night. Um, 
And so he's protecting them the whole time. He's sending them manna and stuff. Well, well, there's a point when, you know, Moses is on the mountain. He's talking to God. He takes a little too long. And these people who have seen miracles, like they walked by the wall of water and touched it, they say, hey, maybe we'll take our wealth that our families have not had for hundreds of years hundreds of years, and we're just going to put it together and, like, let's make a big cow out of gold, and um, maybe let's worship that and dance a little bit. And so that is literally what they did. And then they're complaining, they're complaining all through their time in the wilderness. God allows them to conquer uh, the, the promised land eventually. Oh, and they're still not listening. And so then he says, you know what? I'm going to send Jesus to earth. Like literally God incarnated. Jesus comes to earth. He loves everyone unconditionally with the most love you could ever see. He's doing miracles. People don't like Jesus. Like generally speaking, just read the gospel. They didn't really like him. And then they killed him. And then he rises three days later from the dead, um, like he said he would. And then they like dislike him even more. And, and then, you know, fast forward however many years later, everybody knows who Jesus is. Everybody knows that he's the uncontested God, and they, they're going to fight him. And I guess that's uh, God, God has given enough chances to humanity by that point. God's super patient with us, isn't he? Goodness. He's so patient with us. Why wouldn't we do the same for others? And when Jesus wins, so, so what happens, it says, a rod of iron to a pot in pieces. When Jesus wins, it's just decisive. Jesus loves to do miracles. You see miracles all throughout the Bible. Um, those who have followed God in the Bible, you see their lives are hallmarked by miracles. I think it's super evident. Um, let's really carefully define miracle, though. I, one of the, in Riverside is an exceptional place, so I'm just kind of talking about the church universal right now. But I see Christians so devoid of God's touch in their life that they'll take normal things and call it a miracle so that they can, like, say that they're seeing God work. A healthy baby being born. Awesome. God's mercy is on that. God's grace is on that. That's not a miracle it's normal. Being able to, like, buy a house, uh, get a decent job, awesome. And I'm sure God's often involved very specifically in those circumstances. Usually, though, those things would not count as a miracle. A miracle is God touches the water, and it becomes wine. He touches something, and it's changed completely, not just upgraded, I mean, maturity and growth and upgrades are kind of natural to life. Everybody gets those, and those aren't miracles. A miracle is when God replaces something. That's a miracle. And uh, miracles are kind, kind of serve two primary purposes. There are exceptions where people would maybe come to Christ because they see a miracle. Usually not, though. Usually a miracle's happening is not going to uh, conclude in somebody coming to Christ. Miracles help our connection with God. It gives us an anchor of something to refer back to. And it also is a way to encourage others. I mean, when you go to small group, right, 
um, or you're just talking to someone in church and someone tells you about when just God touched something, that sits with you for a while, doesn't it? It's very special. It edifies the church. When God wins, when Jesus wins, it's decisive and it's distinct. I'm going to say something hard here. Please just be honest with yourself, though. If, if, uh, if a Christian does not have a miracle in their recent experience, and I'm not going to define recent, okay? It's different for everybody. But if a Christian does not have a miracle recently, then I would argue that you're, you're missing something from God. I don't know exactly why or there's so many things that could go into it, but I'm just saying what I see in the Bible and those who walk with him, Jesus loves to do miracles. He does them for the church. He does it for individual Christians. Just ask for God's hand and watch what he does. Watch what he does. Verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. I'm going to focus on the last part. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Jesus is a refuge, and he's not a weapon. The problem is, the world, when they think of Christianity, they see it like this, fists up. Christianity is like this, hands open. It's surrender. It's Jesus can take anything out, and he can put anything in. But legalism uses God as a weapon to go and hurt others with. That may not always be the stated intention, but that's certainly what happens. Prosperity gospel uses uh, Jesus as a weapon to go and get what the individual desires. But Jesus is a refuge. He, he's a safe place where we stay and then he does the work. Jesus wins. Not us, but Jesus. When we are in a refuge, it, it just it changes our posture. And that has a lot to do, that's a big part of what real Christianity looks like is our posture towards others, towards God. Let me give you two scenarios. One atheist has a Christian friend. The Christian friend gets diagnosed with terminal cancer. And uh, so, the, so the Christian, she, you know, is kind of grumpy and pain a lot. Sometimes she treats people okay. Sometimes she doesn't, just like a typical cancer patient going, going through all the treatments and stuff, it's, it's miserable. And so she acts miserable. But she does pray that God would heal her. And her church prays that God would heal her. And then she's healed. And she has no more cancer. On the other side of the country, there's another atheist. She also has a Christian friend, and the Christian friend is diagnosed with terminal cancer. This Christian friend, she's going through this pain in, in this misery of all of the treatments and, and losing, you know, your health. But she's constantly talking about Jesus. And she's praising Jesus. And every opportunity she gets, she's showing love to people. And then she dies. Which, Christ, which atheist do you think 
is more likely to come to Christ? The one who saw the miracle or the one who saw love? We're supposed to be loving. And it doesn't mean nice. It doesn't mean just smile. It means self-sacrificial. It means our priorities are different. For me and my business, my wife and I, can, we can look at the market. She's the design editor for our company, so we're both working in it. And, you know, we have a mobile app company, uh, so we do, like, custom. When I say we, I mean people way smarter than me do it. And um, so we can look at the market. We can say, hey, in five, six years, we could get to nine figures, which may totally be true. Um, but God doesn't promise that, and he may not want that. The thing is, my posture as a Christian is going to be so different in how I approach business. Yeah, I'll make my plans, I'll make my projections, I'll read the market. Um, but if my, if my number one thing is the numbers, then, then the people are going to be secondary. And maybe I'll pay people okay, maybe I'll treat them okay, but I'm just going to try to get the numbers, I'm going to try to get the margin. Whereas as a Christian who's trying to show love, my priority is how I treat my employees. That's totally different. It means I'm going to make an effort to pay them better than the market average. Uh, some of this is, uh, is opinion. I'm just telling you how God has led me to show love to employees. Pay them better than the market average. Treat them well. If there's a problem, maybe allow a little bit more slack than, than someone else would. And that looks totally... When people are treated well... I've come to find that most jobs, just generally speaking, actually don't treat people well, and people are just torn all the time about how their bosses treat them, how their coworkers treat them. If I have a business that actually treats employees well, I mean, that totally shows God's love. People aren't going to be impressed if, if the company makes a ton of money, not generally. They're not going to say, oh, look what God did. Not really. They're going to say, oh, they had a good plan. Oh, they timed the market right. But if we treat employees well and show love in just outrageous ways, that you can't argue with. You can't science that away. Show love to others. There's somebody who when they close their eyes and they think of Jesus, they see your face. And the way they feel about you is the way they feel about Jesus. What do you think that's, that is? How do people feel about you? Again, I'm asking it in a very specific way on purpose. Legalists are afraid of the word feelings because they feel that it's just antithetical to rationality, and so it doesn't count. Um, but Jesus has emotions, the world has emotions, and it's just a huge element of how we deal with people. Get real with God. Make God your refuge. There was... Um, I don't remember if it was Trump or Obama, but there was a guy who tried to attack the president. When what he did, he had a knife, he went over the fence, he got into the White House lawn, and then he got no further. So, so technically, he was attacking the president. That was his goal. But the president was never in danger, right? You have all the Secret Service, you have all the barriers, and that's what it's like when you're with Jesus. Yeah, the attacks are going to come. You're going to have financial emergencies. You're going to have health emergencies. You don't get a free pass just because you're a Christian on that stuff. Maybe you're going to get more. You're probably going to get more. I'm just telling you. 
But when God is your refuge, those things are just so ineffective. They're, they're pleasant, even. Danielle and I, you know, as we're going through the process of building the business, um, we, we see this all the time, where, where we're able to step back and say, this is going to be cool to see what God does. Because Jesus is our refuge. If you haven't accepted Christ, please understand, first of all, Jesus always wins. And he came and he died for you. When Jesus closes his eyes, he sees your face. Jesus loves people in a way that just we've never seen. And he died for you because he wants to be with you. And he wants to be your refuge. And the only way you get to heaven is by accepting what he has done. He is the one true God, and he died, and he rose again. Baptism doesn't do it. The, the communion doesn't do it. Being good and going to church doesn't get you to heaven. Only one thing, accepting what God has done for you. And let's, as a church, be a refuge for others, because that's what Jesus is for us. Many of you, you're going through hard things. Jesus wins. Let's pray.